Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Today, we're taking you on a Sundial field trip. <laughs> the Sundown team visited the Philippine Patricia Frost Museum of Science last week, including the aquarium during summer camp season. That's because the museum is celebrating its first five years at its downtown facility by the water. We went behind the scenes of some of the exhibits with the museum's president and CEO, Frank Steslow. He showed us just a few cool spots, including a mammoth. So that's a teenager. It's a teenager. It's about all that would fit in this space. A lab, by the way, for growing corals and moon jellies. So we reproduce the jellies here at the museum. Um, as the, They begin as little tiny, tiny polyps and grow up into large adult jellies, and then they go on exhibit. And a forensic science challenge based around the character of Sherlock Holmes. We also spoke with the museum's public programs manager, Irakel Olivo Penales, about the education side of the museum. Squid dissections by Biscayne Bay, anyone, by the way? Well, you'll hear us go in and out from our interview into the actual exhibits with Frank. Frank, I'm going to start with you. Tell me what role you think that a place like the Frost Science Museum has. How, what's the importance that it plays within the community? I think, first of all, every major city needs a great science museum, great aquarium, a great institution that is going to bring science to the forefront, whether that's uh, natural science, physical science. Um, you know, the, the process of science is inquiry-based, and it's about critical thinking. And all of those skills are so important to what, um, you know, what the public needs and um, can use to understand everyday um you know, current events and other things going on. So we want to be that, that connector, that we want to play that role here in, in South Florida. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about going back to that original vision now five years later. Is it what you thought it would be or more, or is there something that you haven't done yet? There's a lot we haven't done. Um, but I think the last five years have been a really good um, kind of proving ground for what uh, what the vision was. We've we've made a lot of adjustments along the way in terms of adjusting the content to the audience that's coming to the museum. The best sort of new example is the Power of Science exhibit. And that's a, that's a, a new exhibit that opened during COVID, partnership with the University of Miami that really looks at um, science and critical thinking and the history of science but through the lens of um, academics at the university, what, what work they're doing. And that was really an opportunity to kind of upscale the look and feel. Um, so the change that we saw in our audience was that we were getting um, a larger portion of our audience being adult. And so we wanted it to feel a little more um, architectural, a little more interesting, and deeper content. And so I think we achieved all of those things with Power of Science. And so now the goal is to kind of go through as we retrofit other exhibitions or bring in new exhibitions and bring in new traveling exhibitions, such as um, Sherlock Holmes, which I think appeals to a, a much wider um, age range of audience. Um, that's going to be the goal is to kind of look at it through that lens. All right, Frank, 
your favorite exhibit here right now? Since Jacques Cousteau was uh, part of my my upbringing, the the aquarium, but in particular our our Indo-Pacific live coral tank, and it is a stunning. Um, just living system of coral that has, you know, thrived here. Uh, the staff do an amazing job with it. And it's just amazing to see I mean, people have a perception of coral taking hundreds of years to grow. That's the case with certain corals, but other corals, other hard corals can grow relatively fast. So I enjoy going down and looking at that exhibit about every week to look for changes. This is the one I was talking about, right? So these are all live Indo-Pacific coral colonies. Um, some, almost all of them are hard reef-building corals. So I, and then the, obviously there's fish in this exhibition, and um, these are fish that live on these reefs, and you can see the little niches they inhabit and how they defend their own territories, and when they're reproducing and laying eggs, um, how they become defensive. And just a lot of little stories of marine science going on in this one exhibition. The branching coral with the blue tips off here to the right, that changes dramatically on a weekly basis. It's phenomenal how much growth is occurring in that colony. I've noticed some competition going on where some corals are crowding, and then if you can come down on, on like I said, a somewhat frequent basis, you'll start to see one colony shifting where its growth is, or it'll start to um, bleach a little bit on one side as it's being overhung by another coral. Um, so those are the, they're, they're subtle changes, but they're changes that if, if you've got, you know, a little bit of time and, and you, you can just sit here and observe, you can really see that. It's real life finding Nemo. It is, <laughs> it is. And to see what actual corals have grown and what might have, you know, might have receded, um, the competition between the corals. There's a lot of science going on in that exhibit that um, I think if you just look and pay attention uh, to that system, you can really gain an understanding of the aquatic world in general. Idekel, um I wanted to ask you, throughout the year you have school groups that come in, and even through the summer, and I just wanted to get a sense of, you know, besides being a fun field trip for the kids, you know, what, what's the goal for Frost when it comes to working with the schools to help, you know, expand their education, working with their curriculum. How, how do you guys do that? So here we have what's called EFT or enhanced field trips. The main goal behind it is that they actually have access to things they don't have access to in schools. For example, squid dissections. Those are a lot easier to be done here. Teachers are able to get that insight from marine biologists and our teachers do have that background that's able to supplement those lessons. For example, we have another one that's all about bridges and how that pertains to here in Florida, why it's important to have bridges that are built for a specific environments. And all the materials are already here. So that's my favorite part is that Schools don't have to worry about these materials, having access to it, because we already have them. All right, so I remember doing dissections of different, like frogs and sharks and things. So now is it happening here instead of at the schools? Definitely. So we have squid dissections mainly. We have them during our camps and also during our enhanced field trips. So that's always a great opportunity for them to do it. It does leave a wonderful smell, um, <laughs> but it's great that they get that experience here. And they get to see and learn more about other cephalopods or other animals that relate to it in their natural habitats. 
I just hope that you're not having them do lunch after they do that like I had to. Um, what are you hearing from educators as to what they want more of or what they need? For them, it's mainly the environment that they're in. A lot of them are normally in a very rigid environment when it comes to their curriculums, what they have to stick to, and being able to come to the museum and show the kids in person what they're learning. That's one thing that we hear that they normally um, benefit from just because they're able to do everything in real time. Tell me about what the students have shown you and taught you so far. They're very inquisitive. We try to make most of our presentations, all of our lessons, very inquiry-based because that's what we strive for at the museum is to make them question and get those answers that they need or even come up with their own through different experiments that they do here. But one of the main things is their creativity. Their curiosity is enlightening. Like if I had that curiosity still, I would be doing so many things. <laughs> Last week we had our forensic investigators summer camp and that one was all about using and learning all about the different experiments that forensic scientists do or tests that they put um, them through in order to find out like how suspects work, how do biases work. And last week they were doing fingerprinting with the Miami-Dade Police Department. With the forensic investigators, they're learning about fingerprinting and shoe imprints. And one of the kids asked if their fingerprint, if they put it on the paper, would they find them? And is it as easy as they show in the TV shows? And we asked the kid, why are you watching these TV shows? <laughs> At the end of the week, I was actually arrested um, <laughs> for taking our portable planetarium, which honestly, it's great to see how they get to these conclusions. How do you approach planning programming? How do you think about it? There's a lot that goes into it. For example, we have to take in what exhibits we have at the moment at the museum. For example, when we got the Sherlock Holmes, we decided, okay, we need something that has to deal with forensic science. Then we always go for at least one or two themes that have to deal with the ocean due to our aquarium. Then it all depends on what are kids really interested in right now and blending those two with the different sciences that we cover here at the museum. For example, physics, engineering, um, how the ocean works, invertebrates. That's one of our main ones this summer as well. Also astronauts. That's one thing that kids always go towards. As a kid growing up, you know, what was it about science that you liked? Or maybe you didn't like it and you fell in love with it later, but now as an adult, I mean, how has that played out for you? I actually grew up going to the museum near Vizcaya. So to me, it was just being able to see everything and be a part of it. And I am part of the Jurassic Park generation. <laughs> So I have a Jurassic Park, like the Jeep, at my desk. I grew up loving dinosaurs. I was that one kid in the Dominican Republic who was like, let me show you this bone and how it compares to a dinosaur bone when it's just a chicken I probably ate like 20 minutes ago. So it's honestly exciting to be able to see the passion that I had reflect in other people or in even students when they're able to come here and see like, are you Tyrannosaur? Or even how it compares like the ascension to flight from a small bird hip dinosaur or a lizard hip dinosaur, like the differences between those two, which is probably my nerdy side coming out. But I really do enjoy seeing how kids are able to 
come here and have the same passion that I had going to our old location. The first movie was fantastic. Frank, what about you? What was, you know, for you growing up as a kid, what, what was, did you have that geeky, nerdy science side to you? And, and here you are now, and it's your life. Yeah, no, when I look back, um, definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot older. Um, so, um, you know, I, I grew up during the um, sort of Jacques Cousteau TV series, and um, that, that definitely informed a lot about kind of where I went and what I wanted to study. Um, public aquariums were not really around at that time. Um, you know, they're, they're a much newer innovation, but great museums and great cities, science museums were something that, you know, I always visited and I always sort of thought about, wow, you know, the people that work here, that must be really cool. Never really focused on it as a career path. I sort of, you know, fell into it. You are hearing our conversation with Frank Steslow. He's the president and CEO of the Frost Science Museum. We were also talking with Irikel Olivo Penales. She is the public programs manager at the museum. This was our Sundial field trip. We were at the Frost because, you know, they're celebrating their five-year anniversary for that museum on the water there. And we took a look behind the scenes, and also we looked at what the museum wants to do next. Have you seen any of the museum's recent exhibits? Share those experiences, those photos with us on our social media. Plus, check out some of our photos from our field trip at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, we're going to continue our field trip at the Frost, and we get into the behind the scenes of some more exhibits. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. 2022 is the five-year anniversary of the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science in downtown. And we've got more interviews behind the scenes and sound from our field trip to the museum recently. Earlier, we wanted to explore the meaning of science in our South Florida community, the role a science institution plays here, how it supports our teachers and schools and education programs. Now we want to look behind the scenes of some of the exhibits that you might know. And some parts of the museum you might not have visited, like the museum's coral laboratory, different spiny and flowy species housed in special tanks. Again, we took a, we took a trip over to the Frost. Sorry about that. Uh, we spoke with Frank Steslow, president and CEO of the Frost, sharing some of the research projects that the museum does around corals. Parts of it are not open to the public, but still pretty cool. The other stuff that you can see. We talked about corals. We also talked about woolly mammoths. They have a fossilized uh, woolly mammoth on display. And that's where we're going to pick back up, along with the museum's public program manager, Edikel Oliva Penales. Frank, I wanted, let's talk about specific uh, exhibits that you have. And I'm going to start with the uh, mammoths, Ice Age Giants exhibit. It was about a several-day process to, to assemble. Who delivers it? Uh, there are specialists in dinosaur fossil uh, sort of mounting and articulation. And uh, they had an individual who uh, was familiar with this particular specimen bring it and assemble it. I don't think FedEx could insure it, that's why. No. was uh, found in Siberia. That's a teenager. It's a teenager. 
It's about all that would fit in this space. Is this one of the traveling ones? It's a temporary exhibition that, that came up with an opportunity from a local donor who happened to have a full woolly mammoth skeleton available um, and wanted to give it to the museum on loan for a, a period of time. And so we quickly developed uh, an exhibition around it and, and got it on display. So that was, that was kind of an opportunistic uh, temporary exhibit, but it's worked out really well for us. And, and it's led to an, a renewed push with the museum developing another tier of content, which is around natural history. So we have recently onboarded a, a new paleontologist who's a curator of paleontology. He's working in the field in Montana at the moment, looking for dinosaurs. And we hope that that's going to grow into a, um, a more robust program around natural history and, and specimens such as the mammoth and or dinosaurs. When it comes to fossils like that, so how, you know, th this I think is an interesting part of this, this business is who owns them? And how do you get your hands on them? So it sounds like, you, I mean, there are private donors who are willing to share it, but you now have a paleontologist out looking for, is it that you want some that, that Frost would own themselves? Yeah, so the way that it works is um, you, you can, for, for specimens such as fossils, uh, dinosaurs, there's public land and there's private land where those fossils are found. Um, anything found on public land must be put into the public trust, which would be a public museum. So in, in that case, we would accession it into our collection. It, 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 we make the commitment that we're going to care for that specimen during its entire history in the public realm. You know, that's how most museums uh, acquire those specimens. There's, there are other avenues, which is through private sources where the, these fossils come up for sale and or you can collect on private land and reach agreements with landowners around how those specimens end up in the museum, whether they're donated to the museum, whether they're on loan, but there are a number of different opportunities. But museums are part of the public trust, and so anything that we take on, we're making a commitment, a long-term commitment to. All right, tell me the truth. Is there a specimen you want to get your hands on that you know other museums have had and you'd love to see it here? You know, I think ultimately our goal is to build a collection of great specimens, whether what we focus that on in terms of uh, time period and the story and the content, I think will be dictated by what we find and what we can acquire. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to sort of approach that. So, you know, we have an aquarium. We could focus on aquatic specimens. Florida probably has one of the larger collections of Ice Age um, specimens like mammoths and mastodons and giant sloths, we could go that route too and focus on what was Florida like 100,000 years ago or 25,000 years ago. Um, so we're still working through that. You have the ultimate dinosaur exhibition that's coming up. Can you tell me what's going to be in that? Yeah, so that that's a large traveling exhibition around dinosaurs. Focuses on large sauropod specimens, which are the long-necked dinosaurs and others. And it's going to be a great opportunity for us to roll out what it is that we plan to do with our paleontology program and to introduce South Florida to our paleontologist, who's he's a fantastic. Um, speaker and researcher, and he's very interested in communicating science to the public. So I think he's going to be a really kind of refreshing um, addition to the staff. So tell us about the Bachelor Environmental Center at Grenells Park and what you want to accomplish with it. So I think 
um, some of your listeners are probably familiar with our old museum and what we did in the old museum with um, focusing on uh, wildlife rehabilitation and bird of prey rehabilitation in particular. And that program um, was very successful, and we wanted to expand upon that, plus provide a second location, not downtown, where we could do educational programming. So we were fortunate in that the county um, provided um, a location in Grenolds Park, which was an old fire station that was not being used. And so we've entered into a lease agreement with the county. We're going through a renovation of that facility. And there will be classrooms there. We'll be doing programming, science programming in Grenolds Park. And we'll be doing our wildlife rehabilitation there. Obviously, one of the challenges living here is that we see is with the climate crisis and sea level rise. What role do you think this, that frost plays in that conversation, not just with young people, but with the community as a whole? Sure. Um, well, we play a really important role. Um, we are, I think, viewed by the public as a trusted source of information. I think museums nationwide are um, always sort of the highest point of the survey in terms of who's trusted for science information. So we are that that place in, in South Florida. Um, we view ourselves as a connector to connect academic experts, such as at University of Miami or FIU, who are focusing on these subjects and bringing their work to the forefront. Um, whether it's in programs or through exhibitions, we can get that work out and disseminated to the public in a way that... Um, you know, is a little more easily digestible. That's that's our forte. We don't have the necessary content experts here, but we have people that know how to present complicated subjects in a way that's um, fun and engaging and easy to understand. So we want to continue with that, um, particularly as it pertains to climate. I wanted to ask you sort of the same question, but with uh, with kids groups and schools, if I could. You know, just thinking about, like, again, what educators are what they're talking about and what they hope that Frost could kind of help fill in, is that something that they spend a lot of time on? It depends the group that we have. Normally, all of our educators are pretty adept when it comes to formulating materials that adjust to their certain ages that we have. So it does depend on what the educator wants from us, and we'll be able to kind of adjust to what they need specifically. Are a lot of kids talking about climate change? And sea level rise, is that something that's on their minds? For the oldest ones, they they kind of already know. They do their own research. The younger ones, that's more of a thing that they'll learn through exploratory experiments that they'll do here. Also ways that we can possibly explain to them how it actually works. But of course, in a way that's fun for them and educational and hands-on. The next five years. What do you want to do? What's what's what are the goals? What do you want to see? What do, what do you want to accomplish? Um, we want to do more of the same. Um, you know, we have really three pillars of science content that we're focusing on. One is marine and environmental, which we've been doing really well on over the past five years, and those programs have expanded. We're doing a lot of field conservation programs with coral uh, restoration and coastal restoration work, and so we already have strength in that area. I mentioned the paleontologist, and that's a part of our natural history pillar, which would be the sort of second pillar of science that we're working on. And we're sort of really curious to see where that goes. Um, That's an opportunity, and I think it's going to be an exciting one. And then third is 
obviously this museum goes back to its roots with the planetarium and Jack Horkheimer. And um, that's something that we're always um, looked at by the public to provide ast- astronomy, astrophysics, astrophysics. Um, and the physical sciences, whether it's just physics and engineering. Um, so we have recently onboarded a new vice president of education who's a, an astrophysicist. And that's going to enable us to take that third pillar of science, the physical sciences and the astronomy, in a whole new direction. And I think also how we use the planetarium um, as a tool, as a learning tool. So I think those three areas will continue to grow. And um, we'll be able to, uh, hopefully at some point, do an expansion, physical expansion of the building. Uh, We have some space and we have some ideas about where we would want to go with that to create more classrooms and more exhibition space and become, I think, that, that institution that everyone wants to see here in Miami. That was Frank Steslow. He is the president and CEO of the Frost Science Museum. We also heard from Irikela Olive Penales, the program's the public programs manager at the museum. And we want to thank them for speaking with us and sharing those incredible stories. And thank you for coming along with us on our sundial day at the museum while we explored and geeked out and looked at how this space can help our community adapt to the changes that our world is facing, whether it's climate change or sea rise or looking back at our history during the Ice Age to try to better understand the world that we live in today. Well, still to come, we're going to take a look at Cuba's history that was passed along in letters between family here and the U.S. and back on the island. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. So much of the culture and history of South Florida, especially Miami, is centered on Cuban history. For the month of June, we've been reading the Pulitzer Prize winner by Ada Ferrer, Cuba and American History. For Cuban-Americans living here in South Florida, there's the stories from their mothers and fathers, their abuelos y abuelas of what once was. What are the stories that were shared in your home growing up? How did it compare with what you learned about Cuban history in school. Did you learn anything about Cuba in school? Well, joining us now is Michael Bustamante. He's the Associate Professor of History and the Emilio Bacardi Moreau Chair in Cuban and Cuban-American Studies at the University of Miami. He wrote the book called Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics in Revolution and Exile. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. You know, so th- for this month, we, we were talking about Cuban history. We talked about Ada's book uh, extensively. And there are two aspects about her, her story that I wanted to look at. First, when you think about Cuban history, as far back as you want, what is it that sticks out most to you? <laughs> that's a, that's an almost impossibly broad question, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll, but I'll, but I'll take a stab. I love them. Um, I love those. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll riff off a, a quote by another scholar that, that I often use, which has sort of stuck with me. Um, the scholar Damian Fernandez, who incidentally taught at FIU for a long time, um, once wrote an essay um, maybe about 15, 20 years ago now, where he described Cuban history as moving in repeating cycles of desire and disenchantment, right? The sort of a rising kind of uh, expectations and hopes followed by disappointment, right? And I think you can apply that... Um, that metaphor, if you like, to lots of different aspects in Cuban history, I think particularly 
from the turn, uh, from the beginning of the Cuban movement, movements, plural for independence, you know, right through the present. Um, Cuban history does seem to move in these kinds of cycles of rising hopes followed by disappointment. It is a nation always on the verge of becoming uh, a better version of itself and never seeming to quite quite get there. Um, and I think that's a, a kind of a, a, a legacy that Cubans contend with to this day. You know, this uh, something interesting about history is always that there's more than one perspective of history. Granted, one perspective ends up in the books. In this case, you've got the same group of people. It's not two or three or four different groups, but the same group, but two different perspectives. How different is Cuban-Americans' understanding of Cuba history compared to Cubans living on the island and their perspective of their own history? Well, in fact, I don't think the story is that simple. Um, you know, I don't think it's there are there aren't just two versions. I mean, and I think just to kind of name it directly, when we're talking about kind of competing versions of that history uh, today, we're talking, I think, most obviously about competing versions of the history of what led to the Cuban Revolution of 1959 and what happened after it. Right. That's sort of the the core argument that Cubans still argue about um, and Cuban Americans argue, argue about around the dinner table. Um, so on the one hand, you know, you have, a, you know, a government in have that sees everything before the revolution of 1959 as sort of the dark ages and the revolution sort of representing the culmination of frustrated struggles to that point as the moment that actually ends those cycles of desire and disenchantment. And then you have others, uh, particularly in the exile community in South Florida, who have long argued that the revolution was just the latest uh, iteration of that kind of cycle of desire and disenchantment and, and perhaps even its its darkest iteration, right? But if you, if you scratch beneath the surface, and this is really one of the central themes in my book, um, you know, Cubans on all sides of this uh, historical battle and, and on both sides of the Florida Straits have long had more complicated views of history. I mean, thinking about the exile community, for example, one has to um, keep in mind that in the early 1960s, folks arriving in Cuba or in Miami don't all have the same point of view as to what happened and why. Some had been supporters of the government that the revolution threw out. Others had been early supporters of the revolution itself. And you can believe that they argued with one another about what had happened and who was responsible for it uh, amongst themselves around dinner tables and in the pages of the Miami press. Um, they did. The other aspect of the of uh, Ana's book that I thought was really fascinating is obviously the relationship between the United States and Cuba. Going back to pre-revolutionary, U.S. revolutionary days, um, for you, you know, what are some of the words you would use to describe that relationship between the U.S. and Cuba? And it could be more, you know, more present, not going back so far. Yeah, um, a uh, a complicated marriage, uh, I think, would be putting it, <laughs> putting it kindly. <laughs> um, I mean, President William McKinley famously said that the United States and Cuba had ties of singular intimacy, um, an intimacy that was both... Um, I think, constitutive of the ways that Cubans understood who they were and in some senses how, how Americans understood who they were, but also uh, the source of a lot of tension uh, and, and conflict and controversy, right? So it's, it's one of these, um, you know, paradoxes of Cuban history that's, that's so uh, important. And I think Ada's book does such a masterful job of elucidating is the kind of love-hate relationship, right? The ways in which um, Cubans... Uh, made baseball, uh, just one obvious example, uh, their own national pastime and kind of Cubanized it in sort of the style that it was played, right? That's an example of of Cubans really admiring things out of U.S. culture and history and society, but also the reality of the United States overbearing presence 
the United States military intervention in the what had been to that point Cuban Wars for Independence, sort of a period of tutelage, uh, enforced tutelage, um, when Cuba does become independent in 1902, and the kind of the long-term nationalist resentments that that burns, which are are still a part of Cuban political culture, especially on the island and its government. You today. know, when you think about that long, very difficult marriage between the two countries, which countries had the most influence on the other, the, the U.S. On Cuba, or do you think Cuba perhaps on on the U.S.? Well, I think the traditional answer to that, um, and I think it's still the right one in, in in many many ways, would be the United States on Cuba. We're talking about two countries with a you know an asymmetrical power relationship, right? At the time that the United States uh, intervenes in uh, the Cuban Wars for Independence in eighteen ninety eight. United States has closed the frontier. It's on the cusp of becoming a world power. In fact, its intervention in what would become the Spanish-American War kind of announces that to the world. The United States is now the indisputable power uh, on the global stage. And so, you know, economically, politically, um, the United States, I think, over history has had, um, you know, a profound uh, influence on, on Cuban society and Cuban affairs. But I don't think that we should deny the ways in which Cuba has influenced the United States from um, as you know, Ada details in her book from the early support of uh, at that time uh, Cuba uh, Cuban officials who were Spanish colonial officials for the U.S. war for independence, on through to the influence of Cuban culture and music um, in the United States in, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, another book um, that I'll plug that I really think does a really important and masterful job of elucidating just how rich these connective tissues are is a book by the historian Lu Perez at the University of North Carolina. Chapel Hill called On Becoming Cuban. It makes for really good, I think, kind of parallel reading with, with Ada's book on some of these themes. You know, I mean, I mean, you mentioned that book and you have your book as well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that when I was reading hers, and look, what's to say she won the Pulitzer. So, uh, you know, it, it was a fantastic book. But I also thought, wow, this is really ambitious because she starts with Columbus. I mean, to try to encompass the history of a country that's hundreds of years old, you know, in one book, that's ambitious, but your your overall impression of of her approach is that you know what you thought about how she handled it, but is that the right way to go? Considering there's so many stories to tell, there are so many stories, and I, I certainly don't envy Ada the task that she had before her. But um, I, you know, look, anybody can I think nitpick with any book and what you know might be left out. All historical writing is selective in the in the same way that our memories are. You know, authors have to make choices, right? But um, I think it's, this is a, a multiple prize winning uh, award book for good reason. And I think what's so remarkable about it, when I think about it compared to other kind of, you know, similarly sort of sweeping, uh, you know, almost textbook uh, textbooks about Cuban history, is that she doesn't, um, in, in telling the long scope, she doesn't sacrifice um, sort of intimate details of people's everyday lives. And she does such a wonderful job of trying to kind of highlight the hidden voices and hidden stories that maybe she doesn't have archival evidence for, but she knows that there were, you know, folks who experienced one thing or the other. She uses imagination and kind of filling in some of those gaps in, in particular ways. And, you know, I, I can just say as a, I, I used the book uh, this past semester uh, in the spring at the University of Miami in the History of Cuba course I teach. Um, it was a bit of an experiment for me because normally I don't assign kind of just one primary text for a semester. I kind of give students different articles and chapters by different authors. I, I just assigned this book and my students sort of it, it followed us through the whole course. And the response was really positive. I think students got a lot 
out of it, um, a lot out of uh, Cuban uh, history that they didn't know and things that surprised them because of her attention to the that human detail. I will say no. I will say it. it you know, having read a lot of, uh, having studied. Being a history major in college, I just remember, you know, some books can get overly ambitious, but I thought it was beautifully written. A lot of history. She stuffed a lot of history in there. Again, I'm talking with Michael Bustamante, Associate Professor of History at the University of Miami. His book is Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics and Revolution and Exile. Again, we're continuing our conversation about Cuban history for this month's Sundown Book Club. We were reading for the month of June Ada Ferrer's book, Cuba in American History. Again, won the Pulitzer Prize. And you can learn more about it at the Sundown Book Club on our Facebook. It's free to join. Please join. Next week we'll be announcing, obviously, the July book. Um, going through, you know, something interesting, uh, your book, you, you tackle more recent history, Cuban history. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is sort of how, again, Cubans here in the United States, Cubans back home, shared stories um, and some of that history in letters. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, <laughs> what were those stories being passed along? And I wondered how those two groups were experiencing it. Yeah, this is uh, something that I've been thinking about, and it's um, kind of research that I've been engaged in that grows out of my first book as a sort of a byproduct. Um, because I think the image that we have often when we think about the revolution and what comes after it and the breakdown of U.S.-Cuban relations is that, you know, when so many Cubans left in the wake of the revolution coming to power, and especially, you know, settled here in South Florida, I think we imagine uh, those two spaces, right, the space of exile, the space of the diaspora kind of being completely cut off from the space 90 miles away, right, that, those proverbial 90 miles. And in many ways, they were cut off, right, because of the breakdown of diplomatic relations, you couldn't get on a plane, right, um, you know, exiles were called exiles or thought of themselves as exiles in part because they knew when they left in the 1960s, uh, they were not allowed to go back, right, it was a one-way, one-way ticket. Um, and yet, in the course of doing the research for my book, which is a study of kind of how Cubans have been arguing over their history ever since 1959, I came across all kinds of examples of correspondence between Cubans across the Florida Straits, particularly in the 1960s, at a time when you would think it would be uh, less likely for that kind of rich connective tissue to exist. And so this is one of the things that I think connects to a, a real important theme in, in Ala's book, right? The idea that these connective tissues between our two countries actually persist um, in moments of the greatest conflict between them. And, and one sort of, I guess, micro historical example are these letters that I've found, which, you know, really, they run the gamut from, um, you know, family members staying in touch. I found um, evidence of, you know, anti-Castro organizations using the mail to communicate with uh, their cells on the island. Um, I found uh, kind of funny uh, examples of uh, actually a student group uh, in part connected to the history of the University of Miami using the mail to, start to sort of try to do a little bit of a rookie intelligence gathering <laughs> about things <laughs> happening in Cuba. So, you know, the mail is this um, interesting uh you know, thread of connection that persists. Mail is traveling between third countries at a point it takes forever to arrive, but there are care packages going forward. I, I think it's it's a testament actually to the resilience of the Cuban family, right? Uh, it, despite political differences. It, it sometimes almost reads like it could be a movie too. You're Cuban American. Yes. I wondered how, what it was like growing up in, in your household and what discussions were at the dinner table? So my answer to that question may be different from some others. Um, 
I, I'll I'll reveal my my dirty Miami secret that I tend not to tell my students lest they question my my street cred here. But I, I didn't grow up in Miami, <laughs> and and my dad's family who's Cuban when they came to the United States they didn't settle in Miami. They settled in New York City, mm. um, which after South Florida has the second sort of largest um, you know Cuban diaspora population in the United States. So it's not like there are no Cubans around. I mean, my dad grew up in a Cuban community, but um, grew up in a in a multicultural community as well, um, and not such a heavily Hispanic or Latino community. So, uh, in Queens, New York. So, um, and and interestingly, you know, my grandparents on my on my dad's side, they um, what what I learned about Cuba growing up came from them. But they had a you know I don't think it's necessarily specific to them, but but you know I think Cubans in exile of their generation had the reputation and sort of always kind of talking about Cuba and waxing nostalgic about Cuba for whatever reason, that wasn't really their case. They didn't talk about it much. They talked about, um, you know, family, they talked about culture, food. Uh, my grandfather was sort of an arts buff. He talked about the artists that he knew, but I never really heard, um, you know, detailed stories about, you know, the quote unquote, unquote glory days. Um, I don't think they thought of them quite as that. Um, and after all, many Cubans in 1959 didn't, right? The the revolution had mass support at the beginning. So many, many people thought that change was needed. It, it was just not the change that that, that came, right? Uh, at least for many people's perspective. So so the kind of stories that I got were more, were more um, indirect. And I think that's actually why I felt such an interest in college myself to read books like some of Ada's earlier books that really helped, uh, you know, hook me on Cuban history and, and send me on the path to what I'm doing today. Uh, you know, I mean, it kind of answered my next question because I always wondered, like, are those conversations ever non-political? <laughs> you know, when people talk about when when people are talking about Cuba and and their relatives, can it ever be a discussion with politics doesn't jump in somehow? Politics infuses all aspects of daily life. I mean, I, I think most conversations are political about any subject, whether we want to recognize it or not. Um, uh, so, yes, the you know, the political certainly intervenes in most conversations about Cuba. But um, I feel fortunate to have had an upbringing where that wasn't um, sort of in the foreground, perhaps in, in such a way as it might have been in other in other households. I think that positioned me to, um, you know, go into my own exploration of Cuban history with um, with, you know, as open mind as possible. Right. Um, and. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's something that I find uh, Cuban-American students that I teach here in Miami um, are, are thirsting for, that opportunity, right? The opportunity to actually take kind of what they've heard perhaps more frequently or intensely than I did growing up um, and sort of compare that to, you know, what's been written and, and history and scholarship and sort of see where the personal meets the academic and where they line up and where they don't, right? And to leverage their own personal stories also to enrich our academic understandings, right? That's that's so much of the work that I try to do in the classroom, um, and I think it can be really powerful. What do you see in the future for Cuba in the coming decades? <laughs> Another impossibly broad question. Uh -huh. um, gosh, um, you know, it, it is not a moment of great optimism. Um, I, I think for, for most people I know, um, you know, folks who are on the ground in Cuba who I know and am in touch with, uh, and, and folks here, uh, you know, from the, the an economic crisis that's the worst economic crisis in at least 30 years to the continued fallout both inside Cuba and in the U.S.-Cuba relationship from um, the protests of last summer. Um, this is a you know, the, these are these are difficult times. Um, absolutely. Um, so it's difficult really to predict much of a future um, where uh, so much of the day to day in the present 
is 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 up in the air. Um, and uh, you know, going back to that metaphor I used of um, uh, desire and disenchantment, you know, I I feel like we've been through a very intense recent iteration of that, right? From the kind of um, you know hyped expectations of um, the you know sort of 2014 to 2016 uh, period uh, to you know what's followed, which is a, a period of renewed polarization, renewed conflict. Um, renewed tragedy in, in many respects. Yes, a broad question, but that was a fascinating answer, something to think about. Michael, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Again, Michael Bustamante, Associate Professor of History at the University of Miami. His book is called Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics in Revolution and Exile. And just a reminder that for June, we've been reading for the Sundial Book Club, Ada Ferrer's book, Cuba, and American History. Learn more at our Sundial Book Club page on Facebook. It's free to join. We'd love to have you. And, you know, we couldn't let you go without a peek behind the curtain of one more of the exhibits at the Frost Museum of Science. One of my favorite characters ever, Sherlock Holmes. I am such a big fan. I have read some of the books, obviously, from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and watched numerous shows and movies, but they have this really cool exhibit, and it's got a lot of beautiful historical pieces uh, to look at. Even And they give you a warning, by the way. They do have, like, human parts mostly bones, don't freak out, Uh, you know, and they show really what life was like for Mr. Arthur Conan Doyle and what medicine was like back in his day. They even have some of the first copies of his books. It is really a beautiful exhibit. The fun part is that they also turn it into kind of like a game for you because they set out a mystery, a crime that you have to solve. And it starts with you getting a message from Sherlock Holmes himself. All right, explain a little bit how it works here. There's some different experiments. You're tuned to 91. All right, there's there's more from Sherlock Holmes that he explains. It is a fun game. Basically, you get this little booklet, and it is this fun little game. You're going to go through. They set up a crime scene all the way around, and you've got to walk from one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, and you get all these clues. You got to fill out that sheet and figure out what the clues are telling you, taking you to the next clue. It's really well put together, I've got to tell you. I think I'm a clever guy. I'd like to believe that I'm smart enough. And I went through this thing, and I got to say that it was really frustrating. It was a lot of fun, though, but really frustrating. And then I think there was a point where there was a group of young kids, 13-year-olds, who ran right by me yelling, We figured it out! We figured it out! Okay. <laughs> this is where I started getting lost. Yeah. And I was like, what? I don't... I'm getting the... And then this next one. Oh, I, I, I gave up. I gave up. Oh, no. <laughs> this is hard. See, that was me near, near the end of it. And I was, I was totally lost at that point. It was a really interesting exhibit and one to check out for sure, whether you're a Sherlock Holmes fan or not. Just fun to play. 
forget it. I got to go back because I'm not going to let 13 year olds show me up. But also, it's got a lot of really cool exhibit. Uh, part of the exhibit's got a lot of cool uh, pieces from a lot of the television shows. Um, and and movies and also some of the props from some of the movies and also things that I didn't know existed, not just books, but like board games and all kinds of toys over the years that have been built uh, around the story of Sherlock Holmes. Really fun exhibit, a lot of fun. It'll be there for a while, so check it out. Again, it's at the Frost Science Museum, the Sherlock Holmes exhibit. One to check out and have fun. And don't brag. If you figure it out on the first try, please don't brag on social media and, and remind me of how how I wasn't able to do it. But anyway, we really had a fun time at the Frost Museum. Again, I want to thank all the folks there. So much fun and happy birthday to them. Five years celebrating, uh, you know, again, in the downtown site. That's our program for this Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. I wanted to mention um, on Monday's program, Miami's Roman Catholic Archbishop Thomas Wenske was on the program, and he claimed that the nonprofit group Catholics for Choice, which supports abortion rights, has been funded in the past by the Playboy Foundation. Now, the Playboy Foundation did, in the 1960s, contribute to a group of Protestant and Jewish clergy who helped women find safe abortions. But Catholics for Choice was not founded until 1973, and its directors tell us it has not received contributions from the Playboy Foundation. So they asked us to correct the record. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to have a solar panel explainer. Everything you've ever wanted to know about solar panels. We're going to try and find the answers. And by the way, if you have solar panels, I want to hear from you. Are they worth it? Tell us about it. Find us on Facebook at WLRN Sundial or text us. 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Text us your question, and let's see if we can help you better understand how solar energy works. Installation, all of it. Let's see if it's as easy as they say. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.